Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is not with us today. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccan in Spirit. Today, we are joined with our returning super producer, Seth Johnson. So say hello to Seth. Let us know if you think there is a uh, particularly compelling moniker or uh, nickname or appellation for Seth. That's appellation A-P-P-E-L-L-A-T-I-O-N not the mountain range. Uh, I think, Seth, you just said your favorite one was Seth Metal. In the meantime, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Matt, I feel like it's been forever. Yeah, you've been on an an adventure. An adventure is a way to describe it. The last time I saw you, we were in Los Angeles. That's correct, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and by the time this comes out, our episode with Mr. Dan Harmon will be out. Mm -hmm. But uh, maybe that's something we should discuss when all three of us are in the room. Sure, yeah. Uh, We took planes to our respective destinations. You and uh, and Noel went to Atlanta, and I went to a couple other places before coming back to Atlanta. And the reality is that we are on the road and in the air pretty often. And – 
you know, many of our fellow listeners tuning in today are part of the 1.7 million U.S. residents on a plane, like, as we speak. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of us in the air right now, flying the skies. Yeah. And let's be honest, planes are amazing, astonishing even. It's this incredible thing that for the majority of human civilization was a, a wild fantasy, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. And, and it's, uh, who is it? I think it's Louis C.K. who has a bit about how amazing planes are. Maybe don't listen to it anymore. I don't know where what the rules are, but uh, you can. He's got a great bit on it. It exists. Uh, but here's the thing. Sometimes traveling, traveling by plane is that amazing experience, but other times, I mean, it's at least a frustrating thing, or it can be. There are a lot of pros and cons. So if you are going to get on a plane, you know for sure you're going to get to your destination a lot faster than by any other means. Um, if it's across a large body of water, then it's insanely faster than taking a boat. If it's across land, it's significantly faster than taking a car. Um, But that is, of course, if everything goes well. There are some issues, like we said. um, Just getting through security now at this point is a bother. Um, And also, you know, like we said, there are 1.7 million people who are going to be in the air flying. They're also at airports hanging out. And it gets really crowded. The planes themselves get really crowded. And also you got to deal with things like weather because, let's face it, planes get delayed and sometimes even canceled because of the way moisture acts in the air. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or even lightning, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. as well. So we hear it's stuff they don't want you to know or no stranger to being stuck in airports long time. Listeners, you'll recall that our, our current record was somewhere around 16, 18 hours in our own airport in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, let's also add, of course, the con that airplanes, as they are designed now, are terrible for the environment. That's just true. It's true that planes are often delayed and, while highly unlikely – Planes sometimes crash. Let's emphasize this. You are much safer in an airplane than you will ever be in a car. Yeah. So anybody afraid of flying, just think about that while you're driving on the interstate. Unless you're just in a car in a – well, I was going to say in a garage, but that's – can be unsafe too. Right, if it's running. Uh, and in the interstate, when you're driving, let's all be very conscious of the fact that the only thing preventing other people from careening into you is an honor system of painted lines in most cases. There's no physical barrier. A plane is much safer, but a plane will still sometimes crash. And every once in a while, a plane will simply disappear. In today's episode, we're exploring one of the most recent, most famous examples of disappearing aircraft. Here's today's question. What happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? Here are the facts. Okay, so there are a lot of numbers in here that we're going to be going over. Some of them are much more important than others. Uh, We'll kind of let you know as we're going. So the flight in question, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, was, the plane at least, a Boeing 777. Now, it was a specific kind of 777. It was a 2H6ER. Now, this just means that it was an extended range version, so it can travel further than uh, the regular Boeing 777. Now, this particular model of uh, 777 has been in the air or been flying commercially since 1997. And this model is – it's huge. Its length is over 200 feet, and it's designed to accommodate 
upwards of 260 passengers. So 260 plus, it can be um, basically changed slightly how the, uh, how the seat structure is to accommodate more people. Yeah. Here's a little conspiracy that we'll just, we'll just add in, uh, add in uh, for free here on our free show. Uh, we'll confirm this conspiracy too. Airline legroom is getting smaller uh, with each successive iteration. Why is that, Ben? Because they can put more people in the plane. Oh. Right? Uh, and then still sell more tickets than there are seats in the plane. There's a, there's a dark science to it. This particular plane in question, the one that the Boeing 777-2H6ER that was flying on Flight 370, it had the serial number – 28420. It had the registration number 9M-MRO. It was the 404th Boeing 777 produced. It was first flown on May 14, 2002. And then after that, it was delivered to Malaysia Airlines on May 31, 2002. And, you know, like we were talking about, with the confirmed conspiracy to rob you of legroom, this plane was configured to fit 282 passengers. Yeah. So luckily for the people who are stuck in those middle rows, the plane wasn't packed to the gills, right? Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that just so most people understand. In the If you're thinking about maybe a plane that you've been on before, if you've flown in a plane, Malaysia, this one, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, had three seats in the center aisle. Then it had two seats you know, row, a row of two seats on the left and a row of two seats on the right if you were sitting economy. It was uh, much more spread out and sparse if you were sitting first class or business class. Mm -hmm. And during this flight, there were 12 crew members. There were 227 passengers. 153 of those passengers were Chinese nationals, the majority. 38 passengers were Malaysian, and the rest were from a combination, a mixtape of 12 different countries. You will read different estimates of the total number of people aboard, but we'll have more on that later. The plane itself had had no major incidents in the past, and routine maintenance inspections had been carried out. The most recent one on February 23rd, 2014, they found no significant issues. You know what I mean? So it's pretty good. 12 years of service, almost, uh, with no major incidents. I would take those odds if I was going to get on that plane or be the captain of that plane. So let's get to the day um, on March 8th, 2014. So it departed from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and it was headed to Beijing, China. So and oh, so oh, it's really important to note here, this was a red-eye flight. This was one of those early, early morning, you're going to fly basically through the night and probably sleep on the plane if you're a passenger. Mm -hmm. The wheels were up at 12.35 a.m., the local time, and it should also be noted that this is the same, they're, they're essentially flying north uh, east a little bit to Beijing from Kuala Lumpur. So they're in the same time zone. So when we're talking about times here, um, it's it's going to be the same thing. So uh, leaves at 12.35 a.m. It's scheduled to arrive in Beijing at 6.35 a.m. Mm -hmm. And this was a routine trip. It's one of two daily flights the airline conducts along this route. That's pretty common with a lot of airline destinations because you can fly the plane from point A to point B and then fly it from point B to point A. So it ends up where it left and it, has, it still has its home, its HQ, but now you have two flights instead of one. This 
flight takes about five hours and 34 minutes. This consumes a ballpark of 82,000 pounds of jet fuel, which mm-hmm. is normal. And in another routine practice, the aircraft carries 108,200 pounds of fuel, including its reserves. This gives it an overall flight time, endurance. It can be in the air for seven hours and 31 minutes. Mm -hmm. This ensures that pilots can keep the craft aloft in case they need to divert to another airport. Think of it like a form of insurance, uh, a margin of error. Again, this is a pretty common thing. This is not in any way unusual. We have to set the facts out there. So we've established the following things as being normal and routine, right? The route, the passengers, the amount of fuel they had, and so on. But there was a very abnormal and tragic thing that happened that made Flight 370 different from all the other routine trips back and forth from Beijing and Malaysia. And that was that this plane disappeared. What exactly happened? We'll answer the question after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. (laughs) 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We're back. A little bit of a fake out, Matt. Unfortunately, we will answer what we know about <laughs> this question. Yes, the the official numbers and such times and what occurred. And again, it's it may be a little bit confusing as we're going through this because there are a lot of times and kind of numbers that are occurring here. Just um, we'll try and keep you as focused as possible as we're getting through this. But this stuff is important. So you've probably been on a plane before and you've watched movies, hopefully, maybe. Okay, so if you've ever seen a movie before where a pilot is involved or you get to spend time in a cockpit of a pilot or maybe you've ever flown a plane or you have any working knowledge of this, maybe you've just used Microsoft's flight simulator like, uh, like I have. So you know that there's, there are important transmissions that occur between air traffic control and the person who is in control of a flight, an, an aircraft, flying vehicle in the sky. And uh, a lot of this is actually uh, transmissions that are done by voice where two, two human beings are talking to each other. But a lot of other really important stuff occurs just through the systems within the airplane itself and the, the radar that you know exists at air traffic control um, at varying places throughout the world as a plane is flying over certain areas. And there are these handoffs that occur between the varying air traffic control systems. So let's say in this case, they're flying from Kuala Lumpur up to uh, Beijing. There are several places. They're going to go over Vietnam, right? So as they're going into Vietnam, they have to then begin communicating rather than the Kuala Lumpur air traffic control to then begin communicating with the Vietnam air traffic control or whichever local air traffic controllers are there. So just keep that in mind as we're going through here. Communications are key. So the last automated transmission that came from the plane that was sent out to air traffic controllers um, was this automated position report. And it's something that was sent through ACARS, A-C-A-R-S, the Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System. And this occurred at 1.06 Malaysian time. So that came, that's a, what, 12.35 wheels up to 1.06. That's where that signal went out. And this signal, this message, this transmission does not contain uh, multiple plot twists or anything. It's sort of the metadata of the flight. How much gas do we have left? Where are we? Is it where we're supposed to be? And the answers to all these questions at the time were, yes, we have uh, 96,600 pounds of gas. We're, we're ready to go. We're, we're doing the right thing. The final verbal signal to air traffic control occurs just a bit after. It's at 119, 1.20 in the morning. Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah acknowledges the transition from the Kuala Lumpur radar to the Ho Chi Minh Area Control Center. And that's just as you said earlier, Matt. Let's uh, think of it kind of like a, an audio radar version of a handshake mm -hmm. or a pass-off so that despite no longer being in Malaysia's airspace, the plane is still – under the watchful eye of some sort of authority. Yeah, and it, that's going to come – it's going to be important later on in the story because there's a very specific thing you have to do within the airplane to change your transponder 
to then it's called squawk to uh to then change that to send out to the new air traffic controllers. Mm-hmm. It just so the crew was expected to signal air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh City as the aircraft passed into Vietnamese airspace, and that was Vietnamese airspace was just north of the point where contact was lost. Interesting part about that last verbal signal. We have the we have the quote of what they said. Mm-hmm. The controller Kuala Lumpur Center radioed Malaysian three seven zero contact Ho Chi Minh one two zero decimal nine. Good night. The captain Zahari answers. Good night, Malaysia three seven zero. But he doesn't read back the frequency the way he should have according to protocol. Otherwise, that transmission is normal. He didn't say anything, you know, like the elder gods rise, the stars are right, the rivers run red with blood. He just said what he was supposed to say. And when we get into the the pinging, the science of the radar here, we just have to understand a few basic things. Radar relies on just simple, raw pings, ding, 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 off different objects in the sky. But air traffic control systems use what's known as secondary radar. Secondary radar needs a transponder signal that is transmitted by each airplane and contains more information than the primary radar does. Secondary radar comes from the plane, has the airplane's identity and altitude. A few seconds after MH370 crosses into Vietnamese airspace, the the symbol showing its transponder, its secondary radar stuff, drops from the screens. It disappears, uh, at least as far as Malaysian air traffic control can see. And then in their – sorry, in their primary radar, it disappears from Malaysian air traffic control. 37 seconds later, the whole thing disappears from secondary radar, and that's, that time occurs, so that's around 121, 39 minutes after takeoff. And that's really weird because that would possibly signal that someone within the aircraft uh, in the cockpit turned their transponder to standby, mm-hmm. which is like – I'm trying to imagine what an equivalent of that would be. It's like a Bluetooth – imagine a Bluetooth – um, machine that you've got somewhere in your house mm-hmm. and it's connected up, let's say, to your phone, right? Mm-hmm. You've got, let's say it's a Google Home speaker in your phone. The phone is the airplane and the Google Home is the air traffic controller. And they're connected via this Bluetooth signal because both are sending out signals, right? Mm-hmm. And they're talking to each other. Um, in this scenario, it appears that somebody just turned the Bluetooth off on that phone or the airplane to where now that Google Home is still searching for that thing, but it can't find it because it's, the phone is no longer transmitting. Yeah, exactly. The people in the Vietnamese control center, they know that MH370 has crossed in the airspace. They've seen it disappear and they tried to contact the aircraft various means to no avail. The captain of another aircraft attempted to contact the crew a little bit after 1.30 using the International Air Distress or IAD frequency and he was trying to reach them to relay what air traffic control in Vietnam was saying, which was basically what happened to you, call us, check in. And the captain of this other aircraft says that he was able to establish communication, but he only heard mumbling and static, which would make for a very creepy sound cue. 
And that right there could get into something that may have occurred on that plane. Just the just keep that in your mind, mumbling and static. And calls made to Flight 370's cockpit at 2.39 a.m. and 7.13 a.m. as the search is continuing and in reaching fever pitch. They went unanswered, but they were acknowledged by the aircraft's onboard satellite data unit. So something acknowledged that received it, but it was an automated acknowledgement. It was a machine. But it is at least good to know because, again, if we're we're following our timeline here, we're still around 1.30, right, when we're talking about this uh, other airplane that was attempting to contact. But if we're jumping to, you know, the plane was supposed to be in Beijing at 6.30 a.m., mm-hmm. right? And it's the same It's the same time zone. So if they're pinging at 7.13, they're attempting to establish communication again, and something on that plane is still responding, that means it's, it's functioning somewhere, right? Yes, exactly. Around the time that Flight 370 disappears from radar and its transponder stops pinging, military radar – shows Flight 370 turning right, but then beginning a left turn to some southwesterly direction. From 1.30 in the morning until 1.35 in the morning, military radar shows Flight 370 at 35,700 feet. So despite becoming unresponsive, the bird is still in the air. The last satellite contact with the plane occurs much later at 8.19 a.m., which is believed to be the time, around the time, when the plane ran out of fuel somewhere over the southern Indian Ocean. And from that point on, as far as we know, the plane largely disappeared. So what happened? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsors. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. 
With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Here's where it gets crazy. In the days, weeks, months, years following the disappearance of the flight, numerous theories have cropped up. There are a ton of them out there, folks, and they range from the fanciful to what I have to admit is the disturbingly plausible. Uh, Matt, which, which way do you want to go with this? Let's start with some of the most plausible stuff that's out there because there there have been some some I think well-reasoned arguments as to what have possibly occurred. However, now that we know a little more information, specifically what we mentioned right before the break, the military radar info that was held back for quite a time there by the Malaysian authorities. We we do know that that weird left-hand turn occurred or at least that they went off course, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about that northeast direction heading up to Beijing where it should have been, and it didn't do that. It turned around, went back over Malaysia, and then over the tip of Indonesia there, and then took a left turn somehow. That's what we know. Mm-hmm. So taking all that into account, it changes things, and it makes some of these most plausible explanations a little different. So let's let's get into the one of the most plausible. The idea that somehow the people responsible for flying this plane either lost consciousness or were experiencing something called hypoxia. And hypoxia is just a, a fancy way of saying a lack of oxygen, specifically to the brain. And then what happens, it describes what happens in the brain um, because of that lack of oxygen. And this generally occurs on aircraft uh, when there's a decompression of the cabin, right? Um, just quickly to go over this, Ben, maybe you can probably, you could probably explain this a little better than I, but the thinning of air as you go higher and higher in altitude is a real issue because, uh, humans, human bodies need a certain density of oxygen in air to be able to breathe correctly. And when you're flying in a plane, uh, if you were just at that altitude, like 35,000 feet in the air without um, a pressurized cabin, you wouldn't be able to breathe. It would only take a few seconds before you would begin to experience hypoxia, uh, not be able to think correctly, and then pass out. In a plane, it's pressurized, and it's generally pressurized to around 10,000 feet or the equivalent of about 10,000 feet in the air. So the air you're breathing inside the cabin is, uh, they call it 10,000 feet. Generally, it's the equivalent of that. In this case, if the cabin was depressurized, then the crew would have been experiencing hypoxia. They would have been disoriented. They wouldn't have been able to make good decisions or at least decisions that were based on their training. 
And if that happened, it could lead down this cascading uh, pathway of bad decisions and then tragedy. But here's the thing. Even if the crew was unresponsive because the cabin depressurized, they experienced hypoxia, they passed out even, the autopilot that exists on these Boeing 777 planes would have kicked in and they would have at least stayed on that path northeast towards uh, Beijing. Yeah, the autopilot would stay on until the engine literally ran out of fuel and experienced a flameout, at which point the autopilot would disengage and the aircraft would crash very soon thereafter. However, this doesn't explain why the plane seemed to turn around after becoming unresponsive, which I think you mentioned at the top before we even started going into theories. Yeah. Autopilot won't do that. An autopilot program would not do that. Hypoxia is known to cause confusion and disorientation, which can lead to abnormal erratic behavior. And the question here is, could that have played a role? Could the gradual decompression of the cabin occurred such that people didn't maybe instantly pass out, but the captain or someone piloting the aircraft was confused and freaking out and then tried at the last minute to do what they saw as a course correct? That's the question. Australian Transport Safety Bureau doesn't 100% confirm this. They're very careful with the way they build their case. If you read the report, they're essentially saying the evidence indicates this is the most plausible explanation. But there are other ones out there. What if this was – I know this is a tense term for some people – an inside job? What if the plane was hijacked by a member of the crew, possibly in a suicide attempt? Rational Wiki has a great approach to this. They they summarize the following facts about the pilot we'd mentioned earlier, Zahari Ahmad Shah. Shah was reported by his coworkers and friends to be going through a period of, quote, emotional distress due to his marriage falling apart. A later police investigation, they did a background check on everyone on the plane. And uh, in these, of course, these background checks, the police investigation of Zahari found that he had been acting in an erratic manner in the last few days leading up to this flight. Specifically, he had made absolutely no plans after March 8th. Yeah. That's where his calendar ended. And it it sounds crazy at first to say, wait, a pilot hijacked their own plane to commit suicide or something like that? Weirdly enough, that's not as uncommon as any of us would probably like to believe. It certainly happened a few times uh, that I can think of in the past. Um, it's a it's a weird thing to imagine somebody deciding to take their own life along with 200 plus others. Um, it's it's hard to imagine. Well, but we, it's but it's not it's not implausible. Yeah, unfortunately, that's something we know because one thing this show has taught us about the human experience is that humans are very very selfish and very very talented at rationalizing their horrible base traits, right? So we we know that it's we know it's not uncommon. There's another example, German Wings Flight 9525. That is a similar thing. We also know that the same 
technology that prevents outside hijackers from successfully taking a plane is the same technology that helps inside hijackers carry off something like this. The cockpit door of this Boeing 777 had anti-hijacking technology on it, making it, once the door's locked, nearly impossible, virtually impossible, for crew members or passengers to break in and stop him. Also, the police investigation turned up some weird stuff at his homemade flight simulator, right? Oh, yeah. He had this really impressive flight simulator set up at his house. You know, for me, when I was playing it, it was just on my home computer. I had a mouse and a keyboard, and I thought I was – it was awesome. Uh, but for him, he actually had a lot of the controls, a lot of the actual devices that you would need to man- manipulate on a plane to make it function. And uh, what they found there was very strange. Apparently, uh, when they when they actually pulled stuff up, all they really found were um, coordinates of basically like takeoff and landing, right? Mm-hmm. So there were several coordinates that were out in the Indian Ocean where it's thought – within the area that it's thought that perhaps this plane crashed. Did we talk about that already? Like we honestly don't know at all where this plane crashed somewhere in the indian ocean yeah there's literally a, a giant ocean and a huge number of plot points basically where this plane could have crashed um it's insane but several of the 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 coordinates on his flight simulator were within that area just in the ocean and you generally don't plot points like that when you're flying a simulator. Right, yeah. According to New York Magazine, the FBI, the U.S. FBI, was able to recover six deleted data points that had been stored in his simulator program in the weeks before 370 disappeared. And what's interesting about that that article, which is through their intelligence or um, brand or imprint, is that you can see the path mm-hmm. here yeah. with uh, the – Simulated flight Sahari took in red and then the projected flight path of the actual plane in yellow. They don't line up 100 percent, but the direction is more or less exactly the same. So this flight simulator stuff is not proof positive that Zahari himself took over the plane and purposely crashed it or crashed in an attempt to get somewhere. Well, yeah, because there's no – you can't – prove intent or anything like that with his what he was doing on his flight simulator. There's no way. He may have just been wanting to fly out towards Antarctica that day because he was bored on his flight simulator. I yeah. mean, seriously. He may have just been, and call me crazy here, call me, maybe this two tinfoil hat for everybody uh, because he's a pilot. He might have just been practicing flying planes. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe I'm the the fringe theorist in this case. Here's here's the problem. Uh, a report in 2018 claimed to rule out suicide based on an analysis of the crew's backgrounds, including the pilot, and then personalities and analysis of voice recordings. This report claimed Sorry. the pilot wasn't the culprit, but it did not rule out interference by a third party. And we do have to we, – we have a couple of things we have to mention about those reports in general, which is – that the Malaysian government and a couple of other governments scrambled to cover up and suppress things in the initial uh, in the initial early days of the investigation, partially because they did not want to they they did not want to have bad PR 
yeah. ultimately. And I, I don't mean to sound reductive calling it that, but they, they didn't want to have bad PR. They also did not want to reveal their military capabilities because if you allow military tech to enter into a civilian or commercial search like this, you're essentially giving away information to other adjacent countries and state actors and Vietnam will say, oh, you you can – you can see that, yeah. but that's in our airspace. And then, of course, China will say, oh, so that's how far your radar goes? Delightful. Thanks for the info, bro. <laughs> uh, but they, this, this other report argues that – well, it doesn't argue. It does not rule out interference by a third party. And this idea of hijacking by an external party is the most commonly cited explanation. It's the one you saw in most mainstream U.S. media. The problem is there's no terror group that has taken responsibility or no terrorist who said, we did this, yeah. it's us. There's that weird open letter from some group purporting to be from China, like a terror group from China, but it was, it was ruled to be likely not actual. And background checks on all the passengers have come up relatively clean except for some scuttlebutt about two Iranian passengers flying on fake German passports, I want to say. There's still no known motive for the disappearance. Uh, fire has also been advanced as a possibility. That's true. Fire has happened in the past. But until we actually find the majority of the wreckage, there's no way to know it. There are less plausible things that have been advanced. There's always an alarmist call uh, citing jihadist. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's the possibility of a cyber attack. Oh, yeah. And that has to do with the plane's autopilot system because after 9-11, as another way to try and prevent some kind of hijacking, Boeing installed this specific countermeasure within the, the autopilot so that air traffic controllers could take over basically and remote control fly that plane. Mm -hmm. And in 2007, uh, Boeing had said they had installed what they call the uninterruptible autopilot. So the theory is that hijackers on the plane or on the ground hijacked this autopilot program and tampered with it, sort of the way that U.S. intelligence agencies have been accused of tampering with remote driving capabilities yeah. of newer vehicles. And – there's a tech writer named Jeff Wise who said maybe the hijackers accessed the systems through the floor of the first-class compartment, uh, being able to spoof satellite data to mislead searchers. And then he said maybe they flew the plane north to Kazakhstan. But this doesn't, this doesn't explain or, nor account for uh, dozens of other problems. One thing I think is interesting that is probably not true, there's a Delta Airlines captain – named Field McConnell. His real first name is Field. And he said that there was corporate espionage at play, that Flight 370 was captured because some of the passengers on the plane were Chinese employees of an Austin-based semiconductor manufacturer named Freescale. And this is something that mm -hmm. some of us have heard reading into 370. Captain McConnell claimed that the paint and equipment on Flight 370 were secret devices produced by Freescale that gave the plane stealth capabilities. So he's saying like it, it didn't wreck. Yeah. It was captured. The corporate espionage angle is pretty fascinating. You know, initially when that came out, I, I thought I, – I didn't know whether there was sand to it. But, but I thought, OK, well, these are – 
this is a collection of people who work in the same rarefied air, right? So they would be potentially high-value subject matter experts to someone, but does that make them a high-value target? And that's what I couldn't get past. You know? Yeah. There are easier ways to disappear people. Certainly, but the concentration of a lot of those people is uh, – if we were gaming it out, that would be very helpful. Yeah, true. And the other – there's another part here, which is that the plane doesn't have to have – high-value targets, quote-unquote, aboard for it to just be shot down. And a lot of people said it was shot down. It was very popular with the right-wing contingents here in the United States. It, it, the theory is not super complex. just says a government somewhere, possibly Malaysia, possibly the U.S., possibly China, shot plane down. So there are a lot of reasons there. Some of it was just because the plane ended up in airspace that was controlled, specifically over Ukraine. That was the thought, at least, and that it was shot down because it was perceived as a threat um, in controlled airspace. There's some other stuff in there about um, – oh, I, did, I forgot to even mention this. Did we talk about North Korea and that possible connection? That proposed connection? Yeah, yeah. There <laughs> it's not possible. There – well, I can't say that. It doesn't make much sense to me personally. The idea that for some reason it was flown to North Korea on purpose. Yeah, that's a, that's a Reddit theory, right? Yeah, yeah. The only strong support I saw for that theory or the only argument for it was there was enough fuel in the plane yeah. to make it to Pyongyang. It would have been in range. Done. That's it. Of course he went to North Korea. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of those things that gets advanced as sort of a, you know, I'm just asking questions and there's nothing wrong with asking questions. Yeah. Kind of thing. Like that guy who was like, hey, maybe it was a black hole. Oh, you mean Don Lemon from <laughs> CNN? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Don Lemon over at CNN asked – whether a miniature black hole could have caused the wreck. The answer is probably not, Don. Probably not. Uh, but also this hid behind that, uh, that, that rhetorical device of just asking questions Yeah. by framing a preposterous claim as though it is a question. We put the burden of proof on the person that we're arguing at. Right? Yeah. Now we no longer have to prove that we think the Queen of England is a, a half hybrid alien who just has a real interest in like screwing humans over for some reason. Now we just say, I'm just asking the question what if the yeah. Queen of England is a like a half alien? reptilian, half-human hybrid, and just generally hates people. <laughs> I'm just asking. You know? Yeah. In this case, Don Lemon, I think, worded it as preposterously. Is it preposterous to think that maybe a black hole opened up and sucked in that plane and then closed and then nobody saw the plane again, but nobody saw the black hole again? It was just a quick little... I'm just asking. Just, just tell me if that's crazy. And then that's, that's very much uh, related to the other idea, aliens. Uh, there was a poll on CNN's website that I think has been deleted now. And according to that poll, 9% of the people responding answered that it was, quote, very likely or, quote, somewhat likely that Flight 370 was abducted by aliens, time travelers, or beings from another dimension. 
There is no scientific basis for that. That's a self-reporting poll. Yes. And, and that's just the idea that maybe the, the concept that 9 percent of the people in that particular poll believed that somehow aliens were involved, right? It wasn't uh, any specific. There's no specifics to that poll. It wasn't like – was the plane itself transported onto another larger alien vessel? Did uh, – as extraterrestrials board the plane and then take it to North Korea? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. That's – poking fun a little bit. Um, but you know what's not to be poked fun at here is the fact that hundreds of people went missing on that plane, including the pilot and the first captain and all of the crew and all of the family members that were on there. So the, these kinds of conspiracy theories, again, while I'm, while I'm a, making fun of it a little bit personally, that is not to discount the tragedy that has occurred here. Yes, and well said. There, there are other theories at play here, the idea that the plane was abducted by the U.S. and taken to the atoll of Diego Garcia or uh, that it was taken to some other place. There are different genres of MH370 theories or conspiracy theories. But we do know that some experts have claimed to have found parts of the wreckage. Do you hear about this? Oh, yeah. Uh, several pieces have washed up on the shores of small islands uh, out there within the Indian Ocean. Um, pieces that are definitely you – can, you can link up the serial numbers within these pieces. It's not the fuselage. It's the – There was a wing flap in Tanzania. Yeah, that's one of the things like that. Um, you can actually match it up and say, yes, this came from this specific model and serial number. And there was a plain wing fragment in Mauritius, Mauritius. Yeah, uh, there's a great, great article from The Atlantic called What Really Happened to Malaysia's Missing Airplane mm-hmm. uh, that is written by William Langweish or Langweish. Um, that's pretty recent. It's July of 2019. Yeah, and within there, he does a, uh, William does a great job of outlining – there's a, a particular man that I cannot recall his name right now, but he Gibson. Gibson. It is Gibson. Blaine Gibson. He's the essentially self-made Malaysia three Malaysia Airlines three seventy uh, hunter. I mean, really, he's he's been looking for uh, pieces of debris that have washed up on shores across the world, on all over, all over. And he's also put feelers out to a lot of these smaller islands where. You know, stuff just happens to wash ashore and then they notify him. Yeah. To continue with the examples, there was a uh, – I had not – I am not an aviation expert. I do not know what a flaperone is or a flaperone. Uh, but there was one found in Reunion Island uh, or on Reunion Island 2015. That would make a total of at least three, three confirmed pieces. But then there are other things that have been found that are almost certainly – from the missing jetliner, Madagascar, there was a cabin interior panel found in mm-hmm. June of 2017. Engine cowling in South Africa, another interior panel on Rodriguez Island, horizontal stabilizers on Mozambique, uh, flap track fairing on Mozambique. There, the stuff is out there. It's being found. One interesting conspiracy theory I heard about Gibson, which I hope was not proposed in a in a serious air was that he had access to much more wreckage but was doling it out slowly hmm. 
to to for his reputation. And uh, Mr. Gibson, if you're listening, I do not believe that's the case. And I think people who are doing that were hopefully being satirical or, or trying to be edgelords online. Yeah, I, I would agree. At least from the writing from that article, it appears that his actions have been well-intentioned, like going to uh, memorials to meet with, with family members of victims and going, you know, traveling all over the world with people. In particular, there was a young woman whose mother, I believe, uh, was lost in that in that flight. It's an interesting thing because as they're finding these pieces of wreckage that wash up on shores dotted a- across the area there, the whole point is – or at least Gibson and some of the other people involved, they're trying to trace back through ocean currents where that piece of wreckage may have originated, right? Because if it was 16, you know, however many months after uh, the wreckage was found from the day that they know the plane went missing, you can kind of trace, you know, just through the records of ocean currents what possibly was the route, right? And then if you find that route, then maybe you can find the origins of where it actually went down and you could find the rest of the plane. And then the end goal for that would be to find the black boxes so you can actually hear what occurred inside that cockpit. And it's interesting you say that because that would be my my summation to the importance of finding the black box. However, that's not what the author from The Atlantic ends up proposing because now we're you know we're several years past the event people in australia have done all the research they could the government of china is censoring news that might the government of china just wants to move on right mm-hmm. the government of malaysia wishes that, of course this never happened they want it to go away and while people are still finding pieces and gibson being one of the main sources of those pieces you would think that the government of Malaysia would be more happy about it, right? But unfortunately, that does not seem to be the case. They want to walk away from this because it made them look bad. It made them look a little incompetent. They weren't following protocol. They were doing cover-ups pretty much immediately. And so to the to the Atlantic author, I guess the best way to sum it up is to take an excerpt from uh, their their earlier piece in July of 2019, they say, quote, the important answers probably don't lie in the ocean, but on land in Malaysia. That should be the focus moving forward. Unless they are as incompetent as the Air Force and air traffic control, the Malaysian police know more than they have dared to say. The riddle may not be deep. That is the frustration here. The answers may well lie close at hand, but they are more difficult to retrieve than any black box. If Blaine Gibson wants a real adventure, he might spend a year poking around Kuala Lumpur. I don't know. What do you think of that, Matt? Um, I, it's weird to put it on Blaine Gibson like that uh, because I think what he's doing is separate from what the writer is talking about. Um, the writer is talking about corruption, right? And an investigation into that corruption. Um, what Blaine is doing is literally trying to find pieces and then trace back, working with Australia and a couple other places to trace back um, the to the originating point to find that black box. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. To make an equivalency out of those, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm not doing that. No, no, I, that's what I'm yeah. saying. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, but I see what the author is saying in, in the same right, that the way it was obfuscated by – the Malaysian military and some of those, you know, groups 
at least initially, mm-hmm. it does lead you down the path of they know something more than they're saying because they certainly did before it was leaked. And now the question is, did they reveal all the stuff they knew at the time or are they for some reason holding back information and if so, what is that information? And yeah, why? Why? What is the motivation? It doesn't – goes down to information and motivation. And this is close to where today's episode ends. We do not have all the answers. There are pages and pages written about the event. But what we can conclude is that it does clearly seem to have wrecked many of the survivors, the relatives, the family members and loved ones of people who most likely died on this plane. Uh, would, of course, be joyous for the closure of discovering the bodies, giving them a proper burial and so on. But the ocean is vast. And at this time, while we can speculate about the circumstances of uh, these people's unfortunate deaths, uh, we can not pinpoint where where the bulk of the plane is now or even if the plane exists in one largely coherent piece. Well, I don't know, man. It, it feels like if it did crash into the ocean, you know, going as fast as it generally would, it would be pretty difficult to to find a couple of big pieces of that plane. But it doesn't make sense because it seems like there would be more things in pieces floating on the surface than were ever recovered. Um, yeah, also the ocean is awash with trash. Yeah. <laughs> and huge. It's very difficult. It's very uh, – our species is very good at losing things. It's very difficult to find missing planes. I know that seems counterintuitive because planes are big, right? Yeah. But the ocean is bigger um, and we lose planes way more often than I would like to believe. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And this leads us to um, something that – you have been thinking of off-air, right? Occam's Razor. Uh, yes. There's an article that's written by Christine Negroni and she she basically just puts forth the idea that if we do take Occam's Razor into account here, the combination of a transponder that ended up somehow in standby mode, a depressurized cabin that disoriented the people who were meant to be flying that plane and then an inexperienced first officer uh, who didn't know – exactly what to do to then gain control of the plane because in her mind, uh, at least to the the facts that she has, the idea that the ex- very, very experienced pilot that was supposed to be piloting the plane was in the bathroom for some reason um, in the main cabin or in the uh, business class cabin when the cabin depressurized so that he could not get back to uh, where he needed to be the f- to fly the plane, and the inexperienced guy was at the helm. Um, that's at least what she believes, and that's what led to the ult- like ultimately to the weird stuff that happened on the flight, and then the crash. But that scenario does not account for that strange left turn. Uh, well, I mean, the whole turning around of the plane from their heading towards Beijing to then taking that big left turn towards Antarctica. The but, the manual southwestern turn, which was essentially a 180. Because somebody did that. Yeah, someone had to do that. And that's that's where we leave it today. 
the problem with the most plausible theories is that they do not explain that turn. Mm -hmm. And the problem with things that explain that turn is that they are primarily oriented toward explaining that term. Oriented is probably not the best word to use there. However, we do know that the at least pieces of the plane have been separated from the plane entire. And we want to hear from you. I, I will say just by personal opinion here, I think it was the captain, but that's just based on the stuff I've read. Yeah. I would say a lot of the sources, at least that we've been looking through for this, appear to aim that in that direction. And we want to hear from you. Do you believe that Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah committed suicide taking a plane full of more than 200 people along with him in the process? Do you believe that there was a state actor involved either compromising the plane electronically or physically shooting it down? Or do you think there was something more to the story? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. You can talk to our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners on our community page. Here's where it gets crazy with some of the best mods in the moderating business. The absolute best. Hands down. Take it from us. We know because we work with them and they're awesome. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you can give us a call. We are one eight three three S T D W Y T K. Leave a message. You may get on the air, but even if you don't, we'll hear it and we will enjoy it. Uh, we'd love to just do all these same other things, opinions, ideas about what shows you want us to do, all that stuff. Put it in voicemail form and we'll listen to it. If you don't want to do that, you can always reach us the good old fashioned way. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. 
With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. 